From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kapler. For over a decade, California has led the nation in climate change legislation. And it's been a bipartisan effort with support from Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger and Democratic Governor Jerry Brown. What are the goals of the state's climate change laws and what impact will they have on Californians generally and California businesses in particular? We'll ask the author of the state's key climate change laws, State Senator Fran Pavley, and one of California's business leaders, Rob Lapsley, president of the California Business Roundtable. California's climate change legislation, too little too late, or too much too soon. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Over the last decade, California has led the nation in enacting laws dealing with climate change. Our guest is the author behind that legislation, Senator Fran Pavley from Los Angeles. Welcome. Thank you very much. So you've been called the pioneer of climate change, uh, climate change movement. You've authored laws on reducing vehicle emissions in 2002, uh, landmark 2006 legislation, AB 32 that required the reduction of greenhouse gases to 1990 levels by 2020. And then most recently, 2016 legislation, SB 32, that cut emissions to 40% below 1990 levels by 2030. That's a lot of legislation. Why did you pick this particular area of public policy to focus on? Well, I think it, it was because of my background. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley during those horrible smoggy days where I remember as a child not being able to go recess. And the main contributor was cars. Cars cause smog. Smog is unhealthy. Then, fast forward, I went to Fresno State. <laughs> uh, also has problems with air pollution and it affects children's health. So that's been my passion and interest in tying vehicle emissions. And there's a direct link between criteria air pollutants and climate change. Yeah, my, my brother lived in Los Angeles during the uh, late 70s, early 80s. And I remember him telling me you couldn't see downtown. It was so, it was so polluted. But things have improved pretty dramatically since then. So AB 32, considered groundbreaking legislation in 2006, was the state's first major piece of climate change legislation. Former Governor Schwarzenegger, I can't say it in his voice, uh, but he called it the most powerful environmental law, period. Um, what were the major provisions of AB 32? Well, I think the three that resonate with the public the most was the tailpipe emission bill that you referenced, and that's making our car, all cars more fuel efficient, giving customers a broader choice of vehicles. That's why you see in the road now traditional vehicles, but also those hybrids or electric cars mm -hmm. or hydrogen fuel cell. And so that's part of it. Um, also part of it is really investing in energy efficiency. That's sort of the low-hanging fruit. That's where you can get the most greenhouse gas emissions reductions for the least cost. So energy efficiency appliances. It was very controversial to put an appliance standard on refrigerators. Mm -hmm. Who knew? And now, and they said it would be too expensive. Other states wouldn't want California's model. Now other states all want California's model on energy efficient uh, refrigerators. And it's saving homeowners 
money on their energy bill. Right. Um, you know, instead of mandating regulations, so AB 32 had something kind of interesting. They established something called cap and trade. Um, can you briefly describe California's cap and trade program? Um, do we have a few hours? <laughs> no. Um, a cap means what it does. We first of all put a cap on emissions and we're rolling them back to 1990 levels of reduction. That's the market signal we want to send. Now we could have done that through a straight regulatory approach. All this is kind of a mandated you do all this. major polluters, right? Mm -hmm. Would have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Or we can say, yes, if you're a major polluter and you can't reduce those emissions, it's not cost effective. There's a different approach. You can then purchase what's called allowances so that the government can invest in greenhouse gas emission reductions maybe somewhere else. Could be by providing rebates to middle class vehicle drivers in their new cars or energy efficiency in someone's homes. So it was a way to either be mandated strictly through command and control, regulated to reduce your emissions, or if you cannot, for whatever reason, it's not cost effective, it's not technologically feasible, you can sort of what I call pay to pollute. Contribute money into this account that will be expended thoughtfully around the state of California for the express purpose of redoing, reducing greenhouse gas well, The idea behind cap trade was kind of interesting is you let companies and individuals be creative as to how they're going to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions as opposed to telling them this is what you have to do. So it, all that creativity comes out and you find more effective ways to deal with the problem. And, and the businesses wanted this. This concept of cap and trade came from the business community, not just California businesses, but national businesses. Well, let me ask you, it's been 10 years since AB 32 became law. Has it accomplished what you had hoped it would accomplish? In almost every category, absolutely. What we look at overall, have we reduced greenhouse gas emissions? Can we quantify that? Yes, we can. They've reduced considerably. We will meet our 2020 targets. And uh, has it been done in a cost-effective manner? Has our economy improved while we've been reducing emissions? Yes, it's substantially improved over the last 20 years, despite the recession. Um, so as it hasn't hurt the economy like some people feared? It not only hasn't hurt the economy, it's sent that market signal to new businesses to invest in places, even like Fresno. Um, we are seeing a variety of solar companies come into Fresno, but areas all over the state where they're being profitable, and they say it's because of our policies, not in spite of our policies, but because of them. Well, let me ask you this. Um, PPIC had a survey that shows that the partisan divide on climate change has gotten even greater since 2006, since AB 32 was passed. Why is that? I would lay some of the blame on Washington, D.C. Um, I'm not sure why everything has to be so partisan back there. Uh, I'll tell you, in 2002, I was getting support letters on my tailpipe emission bill from John McCain and Republicans. Uh, we had Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger signing AB 32. We've always had a few brave Republican legislators um, vote for these bills, renewable energy standards, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's because of powerful special interest money. It's hard. Sometimes transition is hard. And as we change from an economy based on fossil fuels like coal and oil to a new cleaner energy future, 
um, some people don't want that transition and they don't want that change and they're using their lobbying power to affect and just, it just could be that the partisan nature of politics on many topics is just, this is one of the topics that it's uh, been become very highly partisan. But anyway, I, I appreciate the background on the state's climate change legislation. Well, up next, what about the new legislative attempts to expand California's climate change legislation? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. Uh, we're talking with Senator Fran Pavley, the author of AB32 and now the author of SB32, the state's new climate change law that comes uh, on the heels of, of, of previous uh, climate change legislation and efforts. You know, what is in, so we got this new law, SB 32, uh, passed by the legislature, signed by Governor Brown. What are the major provisions of SB 32? How does it expand AB 32? What it does, it builds on AB 32. Those existing policies like energy efficiency and cleaner cars, but we'll have to build on them to achieve even greater reduction targets, it's envisioned. So one thing we're doing is really ramping up renewable energy. By 2030, we want everyone's energy mix to be 50% renewable. Wind, solar, geothermal. Um, we, we're thinking in-state production of energy is smart for several reasons. It's good for the environment. Uh, it also creates in-state jobs. We don't have to be dependent on out-of-state. Not going to be gamed, for example, by Enron again and what happened to the energy deregulation. So that's going to be an incredibly important uh, piece of that. But we're going to need some new technologies and new ideas to meet these reduction targets. But by passing SB 32, it's now in statute. We're sending those market signals to investors. And we think the innovators, clean technology experts, are going to be very engaged. I've spoken to biofuel companies in three locations in the state. They are now hiring new people. They're expanding. They know there will be a market. You know, business wants predict, uh, predictability. They want to know if it's going to be there, so they're going to, if they invest, there's a reason for them to invest, so it, it probably gave them the right signal. Let me ask you this, though. You know, the state's often accused of spending money, fat, you know, so fast it's, it's, it's unbelievable. But the opposite actually has been true with cap-and-trade funds. Um, for several years, money has was being collected, about a billion dollars, and not being spent until recently. Recently, that logjam was, was broken, um, and the funds are now starting to be spent. Uh, why was there a logjam, and, and where are the, where's the money now being spent? Um, the money is being spent in a variety of categories, some of it in the transit area, inner-city transit and things, some in weatherization, uh, a lot of it for... Uh, having to do with vehicle rebates and things like that for all income levels. Um, a large amount of money is also being um, expended in ways that benefit particularly disadvantaged communities. Um, we places think, like the San Joaquin Valley. It, exactly like the San Joaquin Valley. There's places all over California, but the San Joaquin Valley should benefit uh, proportionally very well in the investment of greenhouse gas emissions. And there's some great legislators from this area who will be championing that. You know, recently, though, the state and cap auction has brought in less money than they anticipated. Um, is there a problem here with cap and trade? If there is, can it be saved? Well, I think part of the problems was two, twofold. Um, one, there was a point in time that the um, investors in cap and trade and everyone involved with cap and trade didn't know if these policies would go on past 2020. 
they, right. if the policies weren't going to continue. Because AB 32 said 2020. Expired 2020. Was, right. So now with SB 32 being signed into law, they da now, now it's have the predicament. It's 2030. It's 14 years away. I would suggest that there may be then now more willingness uh, for people to purchase these allowances. A lot of them have banked them over the last few years. I think they wanted to wait and see. If they don't need any more past 2020, then why purchase any more? So I think this will be helpful into having a more favorable outcome, perhaps in November, December, the next time we have an auction. Okay, so the signal's now been set. Let, let me kind of switch gears a little bit. Uh, California's Little Hoover Commission did a report a while ago that suggested while a lot has been done to uh, limit greenhouse gases, much less has been done to adapt to the impacts of climate change. Do you agree, do you think the state should be doing more to deal with the impacts of climate change? We have to do all of the above, frankly. And a lot of the things we can do to reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, also is a way to adapt to a changing climate. For example, let's take drought. That's one of the mm -hmm. characteristics of climate change, less snowpack or less rainfall, we're gonna have less water. Doesn't water conservation measures, that's a way to adapt, but it's also a way to reduce water and energy needs. 20% of all of our energy use is moving, treating, and heating water. Can we do things to make that not as energy intensive? Investing in energy efficiency. So there's a wide variety of strategies. Should we be making plans right now, whether it's in the Delta or infrastructure improvements, for example, airports that are in low-lying areas along our coast, like San Francisco mm -hmm. Bay? Absolutely. Thoughtful land use planning is absolutely critical. So local governments need to step up. Well, let me ask you one last question in the segment. That is, you know, there's the major arguments against California's uh, climate uh, change legislation effort has been it puts the state at a competitive disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis other states or even nations. Um, business groups, for example, say it's going to cripple uh, their industries. What is your response to that? Uh, we're finding so many success stories here. It's hard to find a lot of cases where that is true. We have more people hired in this new clean, sustainable field in jobs that are well-paying jobs. This is the future. You can invest, perhaps, if you want, in coal-fired power plants in other states. More, most people are not investing anymore in coal-fired power plants. They know that's a thing of the past. So they have moved to this new energy space. And what we have to do in California is being very, be very thoughtful in the transition, work with our existing businesses to make them competitive in the marketplace. We're sensitive to that. But I'm also personally working in other states. Other states now are really investing in this policy. Following California's lead, well, I want to thank Sen Thanks. State Senator Fran Pavley for joining us. Up next, what is the business community's response to the state's climate change legislation? Is it an obstacle or an opportunity? That conversation next. This is the Matty Report. Welcome back. So what does the business community think of California's climate change efforts? Rob Lapsley, the president of the California Business Roundtable, joins us to talk about the potential impact on the California economy. Welcome back to the Matty Report. Thank you. Um, so uh, supporters say that California's climate change legislation is essentially kind of, you can have it all. Um, strong economy and a more sustainable environment. Uh, what do you think? So our response to that is that it has yet to be proven. So the California business community has been supportive 
of trying to achieve the climate change goals. The, if the science is there, recognize we have a, a obviously huge role to play, and we want to see a, a goal established that's achievable, but that would be able to provide balance to California's economy. So the most important thing for everyone to recognize right now is that we are only a couple years into this. The bill might have been passed 10 years ago, AB 32, but we're just really still starting the implementation of that. And we do not have enough information yet to truly understand the intended and unintended consequences of this policy, much less try and understand where it goes in the future. Yeah, kind of ties into my next question. That is, um, you've said that that this new Senate Bill 32 was not drafted um, with an eye toward the lessons learned with AB 32. Um, So what were the lessons that were ignored? Well, first and foremost is we yet do not have enough data on AB 32 on what the real impacts are, particularly to the average Californian, case in point, that prices are going up for gasoline, prices are going up for electricity as a result of our climate change policies. That is hitting the average Californian right in the pocketbook, not to mention the costs that it's impacting on California businesses. We pay double the electricity price for manufacturing facilities in California than anywhere else in the country, at a minimum. Well, what about the argument that buildings are going to become more efficient? So yes, maybe the rates may go up, but you're using less electricity. Prove it. (laughs) You want to see the data. So this has to be now, we've set the goal. It has to be a data-driven argument. We need to be able to understand exactly what we're achieving, what actual greenhouse gas reductions we're getting, at what cost, and then how is it truly impacting the average middle-class Californian so we can craft the best possible policy moving forward. We're leading the world. we got to show the world we can have the best policy. And they're making the next generation decisions before we actually have good data. That's our concern. You know, one of the interesting things here is they're saying that you know, 70 to 80 percent of the job is already done. But that does mean you've still got 20 or 30 percent left to go. And is one of the arguments here that you've, you've, already, Ooh, yeah. you've already addressed the low-hanging fruit. And so now it becomes a case of diminishing returns where it's become more expensive to get that next 20 or 30 percent reduction. Mark, that's putting it exactly right. That's well said. And so when you, every time you have a policy... The first couple of years, you can do some of the easier things that people aren't going to really see or feel. Sure, it's, it's great to go out and get all this solar. Okay, but the next round of decision-making, I was just looking at it literally this morning of what CARB is talking about at their meeting today. And the next round shows that the, the main growth under this policy is going to be potentially in auto manufacturing, There's going to be huge declines in cement and all these other manufacturing areas that literally is going to drive business to other states. And it's in CARB's own discussions. Yeah, it seems like there are going to be winners and losers uh, as this plays out. Um, You know, uh, the ARB, speaking of the ARB, there was a lot Mm -hmm. of discussion last time about you know, what their role should be. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was an attempt uh, in a companion piece to SB 32, that is AB 197, sorry, the the numbers here, but uh, it really focused on more legislative oversight uh, of the ARB. Do you think that they struck the appropriate balance? Well, it was an improvement for sure. So ARB obviously has 
a huge role to play. Uh, but they should not be making major economic decisions for all of California's future by themselves. That's what our argument was. And we would still like to see actually greater oversight on CARB by the fact that any major decision surrounding climate change or, frankly, any other major uh, regulatory decision of, say, you know, like 100 or $200 million or more statewide should actually go back to the legislature for final approval. Let's make sure that there's additional layers to get it right. And that's not, when you talk to the average Californian, an, an unreasonable concept. Yeah, some polling they data seems it. to support that. Yeah. Well, up next, we're going to talk about California's cap-and-trade program and what comes next in the battle for climate change or over climate change. That conversation in a moment. This is Mark Kepler with the Matter Report. Welcome back. We're talking with Rob Lapsley with the California Business Roundtable about California's landmark climate change program. Um, you know, SB 32 they recently passed was pretty far-reaching, but it was silent on a pretty big issue, and that was cap-and-trade. Um, is there a kind of a cause and effect um, with the, the legal limbo that cap-and-trade is currently in and the auctions now that are coming in well below expectations? Yes, uh, without a doubt. And, you know, what happened with cap-and-trade originally, you know, the business community supports a market-based mechanism, we think, as we're in the infancy still of this whole area of, of trying to address climate change in California, uh, that this is the right approach to, to get started to see if we can get the real emission reductions. But most importantly, when they passed cap-and-trade originally, it's a tax, and they needed a that's, that's the vote. Yeah, yeah, that is, that uh, is the question. But they always say, if you go back and look at this, oh, this is not a tax. Yes, and now it's being litigated because right. uh, of that very issue. And because it didn't pass from a two-thirds vote, there, a court case uh, is working its way through that will act, actually have an opinion very quickly next you know, two months or so at the appellate level that will make that final ruling. Yeah. And because of that, it's impacted the amount of credits that are trading. And yeah. as a result, it's gone you know, way down to almost you know, just what, $20 million? Yeah, quite a, uh, quite a bit less. Which, yeah, it, which is not, a, makes it an, an effective mechanism. Yeah, $20, $20 million, only, only in Sacramento, $20 million, not so much. Um, but <laughs> but now when it started at 500 million. <laughs> right, right. You know, Governor Brown's thinking that, you know, he actually has the leverage with this legislation to continue cap and trade because he says, listen, if, if SB 32 targets are there and we don't have cap and trade, it's going to be this command and control. Command being will tell you what targets to hit and control will tell you how to hit those targets, which means business loses flexibility. So he's thinking, if that's the alternative, business is going to go for cap and trade. Do you agree? So, yes, predominantly, but uh, let me give you the other side of that argument. So, one, it has to be a cap and trade that's effective. It has to work. Number two, the alternative to a cap and trade is what's called a carbon tax. That's actually on a statewide ballot up in Washington State for how would that the work? election in November. Then you can apply a carbon tax to essentially anything, you know, regarding business, individuals. It's, it's all in how it's crafted by the legislature and, and how it would work. You could put it in at the, at the wellhead. You could put it in at the pump. Uh, it's that, it's all that, different it's ways. It's that three-letter word tax. I think that would probably I, cap and trade doesn't sound, frankly, like a tax. And you call a carbon tax. It, it's in the definition. Well, cap and trade, you know, ideally is is 
a market-based mechanism that allows for, uh, you know, credits to be traded at a level that provides balance in this. You only have to buy what you need. And by doing that, you're reducing your emissions, which the business community, I can tell you unequivocally, is working hard to reduce their emissions to be able to meet these these. Uh, or the climate change goals. You know, I want to ask you the same question I asked Senator uh, Fran Pavley earlier in the show, and that is uh, some recent surveys show that the partisan divide over climate change has gotten even greater since AB 32 was enacted you know, a decade uh, ago. Why do you think that is? So, you know, I, it's, it's interesting. I see data all over the board. I, I've seen some of that, uh, mm -hmm. that the Republicans are are more skeptical, if you will, on some of the climate change data where the Democrats are not. I've also seen data where it actually is kind of in the middle, where both of them recognize that they're most likely as a problem and that it needs to be addressed. So it seems to be kind of a cyclical thing right now with what's happening in the news, depending upon when you take the poll, mm -hmm. depending upon informing the opinion. But Republicans, I tend to be more skeptical of huge regulatory efforts from government in general. And I think anything regarding this is, is also a reflection of that. Well, let me ask you this last, uh, one last question. That is, what are you, where's the future of climate change policy? Where is this going? Is there a way that uh, there can be a mutual advantage here for both business and environmentalists in terms of climate change actions? Yes, and that comes with the intersection ideally of you know, what they call a more green economy or green jobs. Now, from the business roundtable standpoint, we are tracking very closely the green jobs that are that are supposed to be happening under this policy. And right now, I can tell you unequivocally that as we track this very closely, the most that we have seen to date is at best 2% of all of California jobs. We have roughly 17 million jobs in California, 2% of those at most the green job. So it is not growing anywhere near what it should be growing to date, that's again one of our causes for concern, and they also pay much less than jobs that have paid in the oil and gas sector, that have paid in the manufacturing sector, sectors that we're losing jobs in because of our we'll competitiveness. We'll have to take a close look at that. Well, I want to thank Rob Lapsley with the California Business Roundtable for joining us, also California State Senator Fran Pavley. If you want to stay current on state and local politics, you can follow the Maddie Institute on Twitter and Facebook, or you can log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. One area where the market may be ahead of public policy is the adoption of EVs, electric vehicles, despite the fact that the public policy goals are not insignificant. You're listening to the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition on KMJ. California has set a goal of 5 million electric vehicles on state roads by 2030. Is that possible? We'll ask F. Noel Perry, founder of Next 10, that recently commissioned a report on the road ahead for zero emission vehicles in California. Additional funding for the Matty Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. Chevron's Colinga Oil Field and Fresno County have been doing side-by-side -side for over 100 years. Learn more at doers.com. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. 
So will electric vehicles be as common in 20 years as cell phones are today? That's a real possibility according to our guest, F. Noel Perry, founder of Next10, who commissioned a detailed report entitled The Road Ahead for Zero Emission Vehicles in California, Market Trends and Policy Analysis. Quite a mouthful. Welcome right. to the Matter Report. Thank you very much, Mark. It's an honor to be here. Um, so first, electric vehicles, EVs, that's an all-encompassing term. Let's break it down. What are the different categories of EVs? Sure. So electric vehicles are described as pure electric vehicles along with hybrid vehicles such as, for example, a plug-in Prius or a Volt. Also, we have a term called zero emission vehicle, and I'll refer to those as ZEVs uh, during our conversation. And for the state of California, when the state of California talks about trying to achieve its uh, electric vehicle goal, it's really this ZEV goal. And the ZEV goal includes one more area in addition to elect pure electric vehicles and hybrids, and that's hydrogen cars. A fuel cell? Exactly. Okay. So historically, California's led the nation uh, in EV sales. Uh, are they becoming more mainstream? They are. And let me explain that California uh, today has approximately 340,000 zero emission vehicles. And if you look at the percent uh, of market share of all cars in California, that's approximately 4.5%. And the growth has been very significant over the last uh, few years. And um, the question about mainstream, it's starting to move towards mainstream. Yeah, I, I noticed in, in your report, it actually jumped the whole percentage point uh, from last year to this year. So it's moving up. But just to put things in perspective, I also read another report that was talking about the series, a Ford series uh, pickup. Um, right. And they actually, that one, the Ford Series pickup, actually has more people buying them than all EVs put together. So put it in perspective, one of the things you, we do see is that in the urban areas, uh, EVs right. are very popular. In the rural areas, it's the pickup trucks. But, um, right. but anyway, so let's talk about how California uh, compares globally. How do we compare with other nations? We're almost a nation state. That's right. We're, what are we, the sixth largest economy, economy in the right. world? Uh, so uh, California is a international leader. Uh, with electric vehicles. However, there is a lot of significant movement around the world towards electric vehicles. China, India, England, France, and the Netherlands have all created plans to phase out uh, the internal combustion engine over the next 20, 30 years. That's very significant. As a matter of fact, that was the genesis for this report. This happened at the end of 2017, and we were sitting around at Next10, and we said, this is really, you know, is this a turning point? Uh, combined with that, we have the car manufacturers such as Volkswagen, Volvo, um, Nissan. They are also working towards electrifying their fleets. Yeah, they're moving in that direction. China, of course, is, is a big push here, too. A lot of 5%, uh, I think, in China uh, fleet is, is electric. So what does all this mean for California, this I move think, toward electric vehicles? I think it means that California will continue to be uh, the international, one of the international leaders. Uh, we are the leader in America. Uh, we are the leader in terms of uh, technology and also policies uh, at the Capitol. And assuming that we continue to push things forward, uh, and then and don't have any major hiccups, we are going to be a world leader with electric vehicles. So uh, originally the, the state had this goal of uh, 
what was it, a 1.5 million Zevs uh, by 2025, and they're increasing that. I mean, 1.5 million, that's a lot of cars. That's a lot of cars, but we feel confident that that's going to be achieved. Our report indicated that we're on track to achieve the 1.5 million Zevs by uh, 2025. When that original goal came out, they were talking about a 35% increase uh, annual growth from 2013 to 2025 to hit that target. You're actually right. going faster than that, so you don't even need that amount. It's, it's quite a bit less than 20% annual Absolutely. now? Absolutely. That's correct. So we need to hit about 20% per year going forward, and it is definitely doable. Okay, so up next, we're going to talk about some of the factors that are driving the adoption of EVs. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with F. Noel Perry, founder of Next10, a nonprofit focused on innovation and the intersection of the economy, the environment, and quality of life issues in California, about a recent report that Next10 did about the market growth potential of EVs, electric vehicles. So a big issue, obviously, is price. Um, what is the current cost of electric vehicles compared to regular internal combustion gas uh, cars? Sure. At this point, electric vehicles are still more expensive than fossil-fueled cars, but these prices are coming down. Our study looked at the life cycle costs of about 17 different models, both EVs and uh, fossil-fueled cars, and what we found is that the Nissan and the smart car are becoming more price competitive with fossil fuel cars because one of the major things important about electric vehicles is that they have very minimal maintenance costs and the fuel costs are less than a gas-powered car. You know, one of the things you mentioned in your report, you, you cite some uh, statistics and some surveys that talk about, you know, the, the cost of cars, but they're doing it based on, uh, it was a... Rusted and Ferry, I believe, uh, was the name of it, 2014 study, that they were saying average use of 12,330 miles. Exactly. But then when you look at U.S. Department of Transportation, they're saying, that's not California. California, we like our cars, and we drive a right. lot more. It's like something like 14,435 miles. So the that's numbers correct. are actually, are better or worse with the, the higher number of miles traveled in California? Yeah, so we did the report, uh, we did the study looking at the 14,000 okay. miles that is assumed to be the average uh, travel uh, amount of Californians, and the electric vehicles are becoming more and more competitive when you look at them over five, uh, five years, 10 years, 15 years. They begin to pay They're for themselves. They're not there yet. They're not there yet. We have a ways to go but they're absolutely more competitive and continuing to be more competitive. It's interesting. Bloomberg uh, Finance said that uh, electric vehicle is going to be cost competitive by 2025. They should be cost competitive. Exactly, exactly. So according to your report, the biggest factors driving the price of EVs are the cost of research and development and the cost of batteries. So let's talk about the cost of research and development. Why can't car makers just pay, piggyback on what they already know about you know, four wheels and an engine uh, with internal combustion, just apply that to the electric vehicles? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And I think the way to answer that is to look at how long we've had gas-powered cars. Mm. We've had gas-powered cars for over 100 years. Uh, that's many years of innovation. That's many years of creating more efficiencies. And electric cars are very, very different. One of the major ways they're different is that they have uh, about 2,000, uh, I think about 18, 1,890 less moving parts. So we have a, a different uh, product here, 
and the R&D is hugely important. The battery costs, as you mentioned, is also hugely important. Yeah, so we're going to talk about battery costs as a huge driver. Um, how long do these batteries last? That's a great question, and I can only answer generally because we didn't really go deeply into that into our report. But I would just, it's maybe kind of a cop-out, but I just say that for different vehicles, they last different amounts of time. Some are more efficient than others. Some are more efficient than others. But the important thing that we learned in that report was that the cost of batteries has gone down 74% over the last six years. Yeah, from 2010 to 2016, a drop of 74%. That's, that's pretty significant. It's, so to, it's very big. So to replace a battery, getting to be less expensive. Absolutely. Um, so what about the supply constraints? You know, batteries have to be put together and they, they require things like cobalt, lithium, graphite. Um, I assume those prices are really starting to spike now. Um, what effect will that have on battery prices? Right, so the, the supply constraints that you allude to relate more to political happenings in different countries of origin from where these products come from. We're talking about cobalt, we're talking about lithium. And, and Congo is, is a big producer of, of cobalt. Exactly. And so there are different battery manufacturers that are looking at different materials, alternative materials to be able to make batteries without some of these other um, products, that these other materials that we're talking about. And that should make a difference in terms of not having that supply constraint over time. You know, according to your report, it says the price of uh, lithium-ion batteries today is about $200 per kilowatt hour, down from $1,200 um, two decades ago. And they're expecting that price to drop to $100 by the early 2020s. So a big drop in the cost of, of batteries. Absolutely. So and, that's that, and as you said, that's the main driver of the cost of an electric So if vehicle. things are going so well, do we need government incentives? Has the market matured so we don't need government incentives anymore? That's a great question. And for the time being, for the near term, I think government incentives uh, continuing will be a good thing. But eventually the market's going to mature over the next five or so years to the point where we don't need these incentives. However, on the infrastructure side, to have government and utilities involved in helping to uh, fund and create and create policies for the creation of infrastructure. Charging stations. Charging stations. Right. That, that's important and that's an important role for them to play. Okay, well, we're going to talk about more about that in a minute. We're also going to talk about some of the performance issues surrounding EVs. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with F. Noel Perry, a founder of Next10, about the future of electric vehicles in California. And for California to meet its air quality goals, electric vehicles are going to have to become as commonplace today in 20 years as cell phones are today. Will that happen? Um, range anxiety. Uh, that sounds like a, that's a loaded term. But it's been a significant barrier, barrier to consumer adoption. What is the typical range of electric vehicles, and has it uh, improved over time? Sure. Range anxiety is absolutely a concern of people who are considering buying an electric vehicle. And range distances have gone down and down and down over the last few years. And so if we were to take an average amount for a pure electric vehicle, I would say it's 80 miles up to over 200. Uh, I recently bought a uh, Chevy Bolt, that's with a B, B-O-L-T, 
and the range is approximately 238 miles. And we know that the Tesla uh, gets more than that. Well, it's interesting. A lot of people think, oh, I need a car to go 200 miles. But I was reading in your report, 87% of consumers' daily use is less than that, less than 80 miles. So for a car getting around town, electric vehicle, even though it only has a range of 80 miles, which a lot of them do, it still will satisfy most people's needs for their daily commute. Right, and that's what the education needs to happen on the part of electric vehicle makers to show consumers that it's a good chance that an electric vehicle will work for them for their daily driving habits. People are just worried about being stranded, of course, and that's we're going to talk a little bit about infrastructure in a moment. What about consumer choice? How many EV models are out there to, for consumers to choose from? Sure. There's 150 electric vehicle models around the world. China offers 75 models. In California, there's 25 to 30 models uh, in the major metropolitan areas. But unfortunately, in the rest of the U.S., for the most part, there's seven or fewer electric vehicle models available. And that's what's going to be changing and increasing over time, we hope. Now, your report says that there were 25 electric vehicles introduced in China in 2016 alone. So a big increase. And that also impacts purchasing, right? People have more choices, more likely that they're going to buy one of these cars. Another big issue is convenience. And that is the time it takes to recharge an EV. That's a big issue. It's been a major uh, barrier to adoption. What is the current state of these public charging stations? Sure. The amount of time that it takes to charge an electric vehicle varies significantly. Uh, for the Tesla with the supercharges, it can be under an hour. And then for others, it might be three to four hours. And for other cars, it might be six to eight hours. And for other electric vehicles, it might be an overnight charge. And as we talked earlier, it's very, very important, and this is happening, charging times need to go down for convenience so that the incentivization for the consumer is greater. You know, it's interesting that majority of EVs are charged at home. So it's actually, you plug it in at night, who cares, right? Exactly. But um, there's a lot of renters out there in California with the price of housing, a lot of renters, particularly in the urban areas. What is the state doing to address that problem? Sure. Uh, that's a very important issue because probably half, a little, little less than half of Californians are renters. Uh, many of them in multi-dwelling units, and it's uh, almost impossible for them uh, if they don't work with their landlord to have a charging station. So I know that the state is looking at different policies to try to create the possibility for this, and this is an area that is going to require some innovation in terms of policy thinking on the state. And just, just to, I was reading the report, I found something very interesting in it, and it was talking about level two charging stations that take two to four hours to charge a car, a cost between a thousand and two thousand dollars essentially to to create these stations. But if you do a fast charging station, it's a lot more expensive, fourteen thousand to ninety-one thousand um, dollars for Correct. that saving time. So, Correct. do you think there's going to be kind of a new supercharging technology out there that's going to change things? Honda is working on a supercharging technology with some new batteries that they're coming up with that apparently can be can reduce the amount of charging to, I don't exactly know whether it's 30 minutes or less than 30 minutes. It was actually less than 30 minutes in your report. Less than 30 minutes, correct. That's pretty fast. That's fast. I think it goes down as, as low as 15 minutes. Right, 15 minutes. Go in minutes. and get a cup of coffee, you know, <laughs> check your Twitter feed or whatever, and, and your car is exactly. ready to go. Exactly. So that's pretty fast. You know, one thing you mentioned, I want to just touch on this before we end this segment, and that is maintenance. Um, 
it seems like you're talking about the number of moving parts of an internal combustion engine gas car versus an electric vehicle. Seems like EVs would have a distinct advantage over gas engines because of that in terms of maintenance costs. Absolutely. As I mentioned, I recently bought a Bolt and I'm sitting in the dealer uh, room uh, talking to the gentleman and he presents a contract. The contract was only for tires. <laughs> that was my maintenance contract for tires. As I said, uh, there's like, what did I say, 1,890 approximate moving parts for a, uh, for an, for a, fuel, a fuel vehicle. And so there's only a few for an electric car, so that is a distinct advantage. Oh, interesting. Well, up next we're going to talk about some of the public policy issues involved with the adoption of EVs. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Mann Institute. We're talking with F. Noel Perry of Next 10 about the state's push to get 5 million uh, EVs on California roads in the next decade. So what are other countries doing when it comes to electric vehicles? Sure. As I mentioned earlier, there is a movement around the world of major economies around the world towards planning for electric vehicles and kind of phasing out internal combustion engine vehicles. We talked earlier about China and India and France and England and the Netherlands, and so there is a very big push around the world. There's actually a push even recently about diesel engines in Germany. Uh, they're trying to phase those out as well, um, at least within certain cities that have air pollution problems. Sure. You know, you, your report states that California is on pace uh, to meet its goal of 1.5 million electric cars by 2025, but Governor Brown recently he upped the ante um, and announced a goal of putting 5 million EVs on state roads by 2030. Difficult or impossible? Sure, I'll just mention that uh, the governor threw a curveball at us because we were all ready to come out with our report uh, on the following Monday, and then he comes out Thursday and changes it to 5 million. Okay, um, <laughs> but we are confident that the 5 million goal is doable. Uh, it's not going to be uh, that easy. However, if we continue to build the infrastructure that we need, that's going to be critical. If the cost of EVs goes down, if the range goes up, if the number of charging stations available goes up, if the number of models become uh, in increase in number, that's going to be, be really important. And as you alluded to at the beginning of the program, we talked about smartphones mm -hmm. and the S-curve. Certain advanced technologies sometimes do not grow uh, in a linear or incremental way, they do an S-curve. And so it is possible that in 20 years or so, 30 years, electric cars will be ubiquitous it, like smartphones. It's just funny, you know, my, my, my daughter who's 12, uh, I showed her a rotary phone. She had no idea. How, do you, how does this thing even work? And it's funny because you grow up with that and it's changed, technology is just so rapidly, uh, it's changing, it's uh, a future shock, right? Um, so. What is the state doing to hit those EV targets? Sure. Well, one thing I should have mentioned with regard to the governor's announcement is that uh, they are looking at putting $2.5 billion towards the creation of new charging stations, uh, essentially 250,000 total charging stations by, by 2030. That's really important. And uh, the state is working to, utilities are working to increase the infrastructure for charging stations. 
Uh, there are different pools of money that have been used over time to create infrastructure. So it's happening from a number of different quarters. And there, there are incentives out there. State has incentives anywhere between $1,500 and $2,500. The federal government, at least now, right. has incentives for $7,500 for these cars. It brings that price down. Um, so there are public policies in California that are helping the development of this charging infrastructure. What are some of the specific places where they're getting the money to increase this infrastructure? We've got the governor doing his thing, but we've also got Volkswagen settlement. There's some money coming from that. Right. Can you explain some of these other yeah, sources. Yeah, so the Volkswagen settlement was for $800 million. So over the next 10 years, Volkswagen is obligated to spend that amount of money, $800 million on creating the infrastructure for electric vehicles in California. And there was a state bill passed a few years ago that created funds to help build infrastructure. Certain air quality boards around right. California are working to uh, help with the uh, incentivization of EVs. So the money's coming from different quarters and will probably be increasing. Yeah. Um, so you note that all these changes have implications for the state's infrastructure and the electrical grid. What are some of the public policy issues for infrastructure and for the electrical grid? Sure. Just talking first about the grid, the grid is hugely important. It's kind of a black box for a lot of us, very mm -hmm. hard to understand. But the fact of the matter is, as electric vehicles become more ubiquitous around the state, we're going to be able to, we have to be able to supply that energy uh, affordably and also reliable. So I would just say that in general, and I know that there are different studies. Next is going to be working on a study on this, the interaction between the, uh, the EVs and the grid. We're going to be coming out with that later in this year. But there's a number of people looking at this, and the, and the rates are important, too. You know, in terms but of also, when the, there's charge. implications here for fuel taxes, too, and roads. If electric vehicles aren't paying gas tax, where's the money coming to, to keep our roads maintained? Right, absolutely. The, the funding of transportation projects in California comes from the gas tax. Uh, for the most part, electric vehicles don't pay that gas tax. So there's going to take some innovation in Sacramento to figure out how do we make sure that we have this funding for transportation in California as EVs become more widespread. Because they were talking about, in, I know in Oregon they were doing some studies on charging your per mile use. So it doesn't matter right. whether it's a gas car or electric car, you're paying for the use of the roads. Exactly. And so exactly. California might have to look at something like that as well in the future? Exactly. That's, that's very important. So you think it's going to happen? So are we going to have 5 million vehicles by 2030? I think that the S-curve that I referred to earlier in terms of this kind of growth for electric vehicles, that's absolutely possible. We don't know as we sit here whether or not that's going to happen, but things seem to indicate it's going in that direction. Yep. We know that prices are coming down. We know that range is going up. We know that more models are available. There is greater infrastructure. So your next car may be an electric vehicle. I want to thank F. Noel Perry from Next10 for joining us. If you want to stay up with state and local politics, you can follow the Maddie Institute on Facebook, Twitter, or log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. This is Mark Kepler for the Maddie Report. Thanks for joining us. The views and opinions expressed on the Maddie Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed on the Maddie Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. The Maddie Report. 
Valley Views Edition is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio Cumulus Media and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.